0: So this morning I want to dive into the topic of uh, apologetics and look at this from the church's perspective. It seems as if uh, the, we go click that to the next section, apologize, seems as if uh, apologetics and apologists have become buzzwords within the church today, uh, and we tend to lump them together with those others that we perceive as what I call, quote-unquote, super saints, uh, missionaries, your pastors, those, those people, um, and we admire, as far as apologists are concerned, we admire their wit, uh, we admire their uh, knowledge of apologetic tidbits, uh, we admire the clear articulation of tr- truth, uh, their use of logic and reason and all of those kinds of things, and with good, good reason. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of those things, and we're going to talk about that as we progress this morning. The problem is, and I, I'm convinced that any good apologist would tell you and would agree with this statement, uh, is that in the end, apologists are just Christians. Who take the imperatives of scripture seriously. So, in other words, and what I want to talk about this morning is that apologetics, apologists are faithful disciples. And it should be something that we're all engaging in, something that we're all uh, at whatever level called to. And so, we want to unmask what it means to be an apologist uh, and, and sort of remove it from the ethereal and put it on the ground. What does that mean to you and I? How does the church operate in that capacity? Uh, So let's define terms this morning. First, apologetics. It's from the Greek word uh, apologia, which simply means to give a reasoned response, a reasoned defense. Uh, You find it's used eight times in the New Testament. All but one of those times is Paul. Uh, Paul was regularly making uh, a defense for himself and a defense for the gospel. He stood before councils, he stood before governors, rioting mobs, and he gave the, gave reasoned answers for the gospel for the reasons he was doing what he was doing. Uh, in Acts chapter 22, if you'll turn there with me, we have an example. And I thought it was an interesting example to look at for just a moment. Here in Acts chapter 22, Paul has gone to Jerusalem. Uh, We kind of get that context through chapter 21. He meets with uh, the council there in Jerusalem, the other apostles. And then uh, he he ends up going to the temple, uh, sort of trying to de-escalate the situation where Paul is being accused by the Jews of telling uh, Gentiles they don't have to live in accordance with the law, that that's all done. this antinomian kind of idea, um, which is not what Paul was doing. All he was saying is that the law is no longer necessary for righteousness, which the apostles agreed with. And we know that because back in Acts chapter, I believe it was 17, they said, yeah, we're not going to put Gentiles under the burden of the law. They need to not worship idols and, and those kinds of things, certain things. But here, Paul has actually been taken captive in Acts chapter 22. He goes into the temple. Uh, he's, he's actually offering an offering. And uh, he's grabbed by the Jewish leadership, the high priests and those who are in charge. Uh, ultimately, he's turned over because there's sort of a riot that ensues as, as a response to this. He's turned over to the chief captain. right? The Roman guard now takes Paul. And it says... Uh, In Acts chapter 22, verse 1, after he's gained permission from this uh, chief captain, this guard that has him, this soldier, uh, to speak, he says, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. That word defense is the word apologia. This is my reasoned answer, this is my reasoned defense. For why I've done what I've done, why I say what I say, all of those things. And what follows isn't uh, some logical explanation, sound philosophical arguments, and all of that. What follows is Paul's testimony, the story of his conversion, his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and ultimately his calling to be the apostle to the Gentiles. What follows is The gospel, and that is the answer that is given. And I think that's an important clue for us as believers when we look at the term apologetics or we hear about apologists, what are they doing and what is their focus? Because ultimately, every time we encounter this word in the New Testament, when we find it,
1: it's standing for the gospel.
0: Here's a quote. Uh, from Ken Ham and, and Bodie Hodge in an in article that they wrote. It was a fantastic article uh, regarding the centrality and the foundation, the authority of God's word in, in apologetics. It says apologetics is a branch of Christianity that defends the authority of God's word. First and foremost, it defends the authority of God's word, the character of God, and Christianity as a whole, and also uses the Bible as an offensive weapon This is a key thing. What is the key offensive weapon, the Bible? Against all other worldviews and opposition. Now, I want to ask a question. This is the interactive portion. Does the Bible being called a sword sound familiar? Yeah. That's one of the one of the things that we are given in Ephesians chapter 6 is we look at the armor of God. We have this offensive weapon, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. We have that with us. We have this idea, and apologetics has grown up around this idea, that we have to somehow shore up the Word of God. Now, without going into a lot of detail, there's more than one style of apologetics and i think they all have some inherent value. i tend to subscribe to what's called a presuppositional approach. in other words, the presuppositions that god exists and his word is true are the foundation of every argument from that point forward. clearly, answers in genesis falls into that category. that's their desire. we're going to stand upon the word of god, the authority of god's word and the character of who god is and we're going to defend that using scripture first and foremost. This is key in our understanding because as we look at apologetics and we look at what an apologist is, how we put that into practice, we need to understand that we need to know the Bible first and foremost. And what usually happens in apologetics training is all this other stuff comes in and there's nothing wrong with it, but it comes in and it distracts us from the key thing we don't have that foundation we're going to talk about this in 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 a little while if we don't have that foundation first we're going to struggle as an apologist so who are these people who who are these people that come in that that are apologists and I ask that question for a reason turn with me to ephesians chapter 4 ephesians chapter 4 let's read verses 11 and 12 11 and 12 god has established And given us in his word, the offices and the roles of those who operate within the church, his structure. And he gives us that in in short form here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, here's, here's a question for you. What is not mentioned? What is clearly absent in that list? Apologists. That's right. They're not in that list. Now, there, there's a case to be made that perhaps an evangelist and apologist is the same. I would make that case. But when we separate it into a separate ministry, this is something that not non-existent. Why is it not mentioned? This is a this is a harder question. Why is it not mentioned? Why are apologists not mentioned in this list? I'll give you a hint, uh, perhaps a hint. I think that they are mentioned, but uh, they're not called apologists. Who is being equipped in this passage? Who's being equipped?
1: He gave some pastors, teachers, evangelists, so on and so forth for the perfecting of who? The saints.
0: Apologists aren't mentioned because the saints are the apologists. Then that's, that's the point. You and I are called to this. This is something that we should be engaged in. As we look at As I said earlier, that apologists are simply believers who take the imperatives or the commands of Scripture seriously and they put them into practice. And so when we talk about who are are these people that are apologists, first and foremost, they are believers. And if they're not a believer, they can't really be an apologist, can they? They've never tasted and seen that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. And one problem that we have in the church today is that we look to these apologists who aren't even convinced in the existence of God, and those being some of the leading apologists within Christianity. And that's a shocking thing, or it should be a shocking thing to us. Let alone, is God's Word true? So they're standing on a different foundation, we're going to look at that foundation as we, as we progress this morning in a single slide. So these apologists, who are they? it's the church apologists in the church are the saints you and I believers are the most effective apologists that's the way it is and the imperatives the commands that God has given the apologetic imperatives in other words the command what are we told to do as believers in regard to apologetics what are we told to do because those commands aren't given to a specific few listed here in Ephesians chapter 4. Those commands, these imperatives are given to you and I, the church at large. This is something that we should be engaging in. First, and probably the most familiar is 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15. And I want to make a couple of points here, uh, not to uh, not to get down on evidential-based apologetics, but to emphasize the fact that we first and foremost need to know the word of god that that is our primary instrument of apologetics first peter three fifteen it says but sanctify the lord god in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer or that's the word apologia that's that greek word that ready defense to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear so first off, we're supposed to always be ready. That's the first thing. We are always ready to give an answer. The Bible would say that in season or out of season, we're always ready to give that answer. That means that there is some inherent knowledge, right We memorize Scripture. We practice that as, as a group because it gives us the basis it gives us the basis in our heart from which we can answer. You remember in school, at least when I was in school, I remember my teachers telling me, you're not always going to have a calculator with you, so you need to memorize these multiplication facts. Lo and behold, everyone always has a calculator in their pocket today, right? But we didn't know that then. You and I, I understand we have on the same device, that same phone or whatever, we probably have the word of God in our pocket. We probably have some Bible out there that we can pull up and we can look at it. we can And I'm not saying don't use that, use it by all means, capitalize on that technology. But what I am saying is that if you, I mean, I spent an entire week not very long ago, didn't matter if it was on my phone or not. First of all, I didn't have my phone with me. Secondly, my phone wasn't going to work. So we need to know it. We need to know the word. So we practice that. We engage in that so that we always have that. Basis of answer that foundation of the word of God to always be ready. We're going to talk about as we close this morning how we prepare, how we train, so to speak, to be apologists. Second, what are we to give an answer for? Specifically in this passage, what does this verse say we are to be ready always to give an answer for? The hope that is in us. Very good. Not scientific argument, not defense of facts that's not what we're giving. If we're always ready to give an answer and we look at Acts chapter 22 we look at that particular instance of the use of that word and what is Paul what is his defense it is the gospel. Here I am defending myself but you know what time is precious so I'm going to just give you Jesus. This is what we give an answer for. Now as we look at as we close this morning as we talk about that I'm not saying don't spend time looking at evidences and, and observing creation. That's, in fact, one of the points I'm going to make, one of the things that we should be doing. But pr- primarily, what we're commanded in Scripture as, as apologists, as believers, to do is to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, be able to articulate the gospel first and foremost. Okay, That's, that's key number one. When we look at the the commands in scripture regarding apologetics that we could apply to it first be ready to give an answer for the gospel for the hope that lies within us that's first and foremost second if we turn to jude chapter three now i'll just tell you right now that in jude chapter three verse three jude three that in, the, the, the word apology is not used in this verse. And that's fine. It means the same thing. Here it is. He says, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. So his goal, first and foremost, I want to write to you about the gospel, about Jesus Christ, about what he has done for us. It was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints so we have this command that we would earnestly contend that we would uh, struggle and the word contend means to struggle in defense struggle in defense so i put some boxing gloves up there right you gotta have your hands ready your footwork's gotta be good that's where i fall i just i'm slow I would be a terrible boxer. I know this, having tried it once or twice, and I was horrible. Not like borderline, you could maybe get better, like, now, there's no hope. Okay? Contend or struggle in defense of. The exhortation, the imperative for you and I, is that we would be ready always to give an answer for the hope that's within us, and that we would stand, and not just stand, but fight, contend, make argument for the principles of Scripture, for the common salvation, for those things that we have heard and seen that we have read in Scripture. This is the exhortation that we find, and this is what we are commanded to do. It was so needful that Jude changed the entire content of his letter. And he begins to talk about false teachers, those who have slipped in, who are who who are crafty and they're just trying to sneak in and lead people away from Christ. And I got news for you. It's still needed. There's nothing new under the sun. And this is an area where that is absolutely true. Those people still exist. There are those who are still trying to sneak in. You and I have to be ready to contend to fight for and stand in defense of biblical truth. There are those who are in opposition to God's word, God's will, and God's ways. Those are under attack. We have to be ready. We're commanded. This is an imperative. This is something that you and I should do. It's not enough that we would rally political things and that we we stand for biblical truth. We don't want to be like the, the nation of Israel that was looking for a political deliverer in Jesus. We're looking for spiritual deliverance, and we're not only that. We're looking for the spiritual deliverance of those who need it, the lost. So we have these apologetic imperatives. Next, next imperative: Second Timothy two fifteen. Does anybody know what that one says? Anybody know? Study. Show thyself approved unto God, workmen. You. Need not being ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God, word of truth, sorry. This is where we're commanded to study. We are commanded to engage in the word of God. And now I'm, I'm going to say, it's not just reading the word of God, although I would highly recommend and I would challenge you to read the, word, to read the Bible regularly. And I'm not just saying read a little bit every day, I'm saying read the entire thing. In about thirty minutes a day, you can read the Bible in three months. It's possible, and and that and it's not a huge time commitment. Maybe you need to stretch it out to six months. That's only fifteen minutes a day. You could put it on your in your car instead of listening to that podcast, or instead of listening to the radio for fifteen minutes. And in six months, you've got the entire Bible.
1: Fifteen minutes a day. That is.
0: For me, that has been one of the most worthwhile pursuits that I have ever engaged in, in a long time. So I'm not saying don't read it. What I am saying is don't fall short of studying the Word of God. The imperative, the command, is that we would take those truths and we would investigate them, that we would engage with the Word of God such that it is informing us, that it is having its way within us that it's changing the way we think about how things uh, interact. It provides us the ability to plain, plain the scripture, right? It says that rightly dividing, that means cutting straight. And when I read that and when I looked it up and I kind of defined what that meant, right? We understand, we understand that cutting a straight line. For me, it's akin to taking a piece of wood and making it square. So, when I woodwork, I typically use hand tools. That's my preference. It's slower, but if I find it far more gratifying. You work wood however you want. Okay. But the idea is that when I'm done and I put that square on it, it's perfectly 90 degrees to the other side. And I've taken the time to do that, to, to make that right. Now, it takes some effort. If you're going to do it with hand tools, you're probably in the middle of that. You're going to have to stop and sharpen your plane irons. There's an engagement that takes place here. And in the same way, if we're going to cut straight, if we're going to rightly divide the word of God, there's going to be a little bit of effort, a little bit of time put into all of this. But that provides the ability for us to cut it straight, our engagement in it, our study of it. One of the key things that you'll see if you take the time to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in that short period of time is you're going to see the consistency of the gospel. We have this perfect creation, right? Declared perfect by God. Here it is. And then we find the fall of mankind and the rest of the story of scripture is all about God fulfilling his promise made in Genesis 3.15 to redeem mankind. This incredible consistency all throughout and you know that becomes a real hermeneutics tool an interpretive tool of scripture because if we interpret the bible different out of that overall context we've probably missed the mark if we somehow interpret even uh, the first few chapters of genesis and it being a literal six-day creation when we come through and we begin to look at these things throughout scripture that are affected by that, those key doctrines that are established in those first few chapters of Genesis, we're going to interpret scripture wrong. We're not going to cut it straight. There's going to be some jagged edges in there because we've missed it. We have to study. We have to put that time in. That knowledge of the word is our basis of interaction with the world around us. Right? This is the offensive tool. We're going to keep it sharp. We're going to keep it at hand. It's going to be ready. So it's, I hide it in my heart so that I don't sin against the Lord. So that it's ready and able to wield it at any moment. I don't have to fumble around with my phone and get the apps out. As convenient and as as quick as that may be, if it's here or here or both, preferably, all the better. Right, Knowledge of the Word is our basis for interaction with the world. When we see things going south, when we, uh, when we look at all kinds of things, political upheaval, wars and rumors of wars, and all those things, we look at Scripture, well, yeah, you know, just, we have much more confidence and assurance of what's going on in the world around us. We don't live in fear because we have the certainty of the truth of Scripture to stand upon.
1: This is a command that we would
0: study scripture, that we would be engaged in it. I'll tell you this, that those apologists, good apologists, they've put the time in. We admire their knowledge of truth, of the, of the word of God, and we do so with good reason. They've studied. They've done the homework. And so when they pull out the sword really quick and they go to slicing with it and everything comes out nice and clean and tidy, we admired that we should try to exemplify that in our lives as well. Next, Colossians chapter 4. Turn there with me. Colossians chapter 4. The goal of apologetics isn't to destroy your enemy. Uh, as satisfying and, and gratifying to the flesh as that may be, that is not the goal. Sharing the gospel is the goal and so in colossians chapter four verses five through six he says walk in wisdom toward them that are without redeeming the time walk in wisdom to those who are without so those who are outside of the faith redeeming the time so we're gonna we're going to use that time wise we're going to capitalize on the opportunities that God puts before us and he continues let your speech be always with grace seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer every man so, I put this picture up here because, I mean, first of all, I can't find any. I, 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 the guy with the salt, you know, whatever. I, I thought, well, that'd be kind of clever, but that's corn. This looks good. I want that food. I don't know what it is, but it looks delicious. And that's the way our, the presentation of the gospel should be. Our interactions with the world around us should be such that there is some desire to hear more. We conduct ourselves as is becoming of the gospel of Jesus. It is consistent with, that doesn't misrepresent it. Now, sometimes we may do so, and we don't even realize it. There are certain things within uh, our uh, personality, for instance. Uh, I remember years ago, we had a conversation. I don't even remember. I do remember who it was with. we were visiting family and we had this conversation with uh, the pastor and his wife and she had her grandma told her, she says, you have a natural scowl. Your face kind of always looks grumpy. I mean, it's my face. I can't change it, right? It's... <laughs> but I can appear happy. I can learn to smile. I can learn to wear a countenance that is approachable. And in many respects, while there may be things within our personality that we would have to change, and and the argument is, well, that's just who I am. If it's not becoming of the gospel, if it misrepresents Jesus Christ, you do need to change it. We need to work on those things. We need to let the Holy Spirit convict us and grow us and change us in those areas. Who here wouldn't agree that, boy, when I was younger, I was a hothead, and now as I've grown, I'm less of a hothead. We've all probably been there. And in the same respect, when we conduct ourselves, whether it's speech, the way we we talk, how we talk, what we talk about, the presentation of that, uh, just gaining confidence in holding a conversation. Listen, I understand that is not a strength that I have. I can stand in front of people and I can talk to them, but when it comes down to one-on-one or that it it's a ton of effort for me it is a learned skill and there are some people that are natural at it i'm not natural but it is worthwhile i want to be able to redeem that time that i have with that person as short as it may be in such a way that when they leave they want more they want another taste seasoned with that grace so in addition to conducting ourselves in a way that is consistent that is becoming that represents the gospel well i don't want to waste time that's not how you spell waste that's the wrong kind of waste (laughs) i will probably forget to change that right but i don't want to waste time i may not ever meet that person again you may not ever meet that person again who knows the bible tells us that no one is guaranteed tomorrow and so when, here, when Paul is standing there and he has the opportunity to make a defense and, and say, listen, this is what, he shares the gospel. I remember Mike Riddle talking about he had an opportunity to speak at NASA. And he knew, he knew that he was going into enemy territory. And you know what he talked about the entire presentation? He shared the gospel. He didn't talk about science. He didn't talk about those things. They're, these guys are science experts. He shared the gospel with them. Why? Because we want to redeem the time. We're not going to waste the opportunity that's before
1: us. Don't waste time. We
0: want to be seasoned with grace. Seasoned with grace. Or you put a little salt on something, it's delicious. It's just better. It doesn't take a lot, but just a little. You put some, listen, right? We put paprika on deviled eggs. Listen, next time you fry eggs, put a little, Little paprika, delicious. People look at me like I'm weird. I'm like paprika on your eggs. I'm like, it's a thing. It's delicious. Just try it. Or whatever it may be. Made some squash and zucchini while we were up camping and a little olive oil, and I don't know what was in the seasoning that I used. It was some seasoning that I grabbed out of the cupboard and I used it because I remembered I, I smelled it. And I was like, oh, that smells like when I was a kid and we used to batter and fry zucchini. That's what it. I remember it tasting like that's the smell. So I used that. We weren't battering it, but it was delicious. I wanted more of that because that's what i had had in the past. That seasoning is what keeps us coming back for the next bite. That little bit of, I want some more of that. Now, I had this conversation with my son-in-law. We were talking about good food. We talked about lots of things. We were talking about good food, right? And you want good food. You'd have this desire for good food. And then we're like, we both kind of at the same time sit up and you're like, but every now and then, some fast food is pretty good. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not particularly good for you. It's usually just really, really salty and greasy. But every now and then it hits the spot,
1: right? That's analogous
0: to what the world has to offer. It will satisfy, you'll eat it and you'll probably enjoy it in the process, but at the end, you don't really feel good about what you ate, nor are you left in a good place having consumed it. Yet here we, as believers, what do we have to offer? We
1: have home-cooked goodness. And I would take that every day over a Big Mac.
0: And most people probably would.
1: But if it's not good,
0: you're not going to choose it. You put Brussels sprouts and ice cream side by side, and the choice is clear. Most kids are going to choose ice cream, right? Who who wouldn't? I mean, I like Brussels sprouts. I'm probably going to choose the ice cream too. Seasoned with grace, some desirability in the way we act, what we say and how we say it this is an imperative this is a command that we've been given that we would operate in this way don't waste time just get to the good stuff right dessert 1st In keeping with the whole food thing acts chapter one verse eight who knows what we find in acts chapter one verse eight who knows come on somebody knows When I say it, if somebody else doesn't say it, you're all going to go, oh, I knew that. What do we find? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The Great Commission. Now, you find it in other places too, but here we find it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem. And in Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. We talk about imperatives. We talk about the commands of apologists, right? If the goal of apologetics is to share the gospel, then it is a great commission outcome. That, that's what's happening here. We're sharing the gospel. This is probably the greatest imperative that Jesus left us. All of the others are probably sub points underneath this one thing, the Great Commission. We share the gospel, just like we read in Colossians, we redeem that time well to those who are without. In addition, it's not the commission of a select few. That makes sense? This is for everybody. This isn't something that Jesus said, listen, you guys over here, you guys are my elites. I want you, this is your job. Your task is to spread the gospel. And then, you know, there won't be anybody else when you're dead, but we'll have gotten that far. So this is a command that he's left for time. As long as he's absent, this is our job. This is our chief occupation.
1: We are to share the gospel. You, me, believers not in a
0: select few. Last, well maybe not last. Romans turns me to Romans chapter 1. So we talk about the imperatives, the commands of scripture in regard to apologetics. Romans chapter 1, let's read verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we're going to get more than one imperative in this, but I'm going to lump them together. First, we're not ashamed of the gospel. And why are we not ashamed of the gospel? We find the answer, not only is it the power of God to salvation, but we find the answer, verse 17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So for you and I as believers, the imperative, the command is that we're not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because we are living by faith. That's the imperative. That's the command. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because he has faith. He trusts that as scripture says, it is in fact the mechanism of salvation, that it is in fact the truth of how we are born again. Now you and I can't, test that we can't put it in a lab and we can't observe it it isn't repeatable science it's it's not a fact that we can point to but it's but scripture would say those who have tasted and seen that the lord is good we know it we've experienced it to me the clearest but one of the clearest in in any kind of contemporary literature explanation of the experience of the gospel contemporary, quote-unquote, is John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. And you just can't help but think about Pilgrim coming to the cross, and as he comes to the cross, that burden just falls off. And the the vivid description that John Bunyan pens of of the deliverance from the burden of sin and death, and it's just well-written.
1: But that's it. The just are going to
0: live by faith. We trust that this is, in fact, what God has programmed into his creation for our benefit, for our salvation. This is how he delivers on the promise to redeem mankind. And we don't, we don't shy away from it. We're not ashamed of it because we're living by faith. Not only that, but we can add to that the God-given principles in the Bible that we're going to stand upon those, that if this is the word of God, if this is exactly what it claims to be in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, the inspired word of God that is profitable for reproof and instruction. Boy, I just blanked on that verse, but you guys fill in the rest, okay? That the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works, all of those things, right? That we are not ashamed and that we live by faith in those God-given principles. That if God says, this is the way that it is, and that's the way that it is. If God says, these are the things that we should do, then those are the things that we should do. If God says, these are things we shouldn't do, those are things we shouldn't do. And that God isn't somehow withholding something from us. He's not uh, you know, against us in any way, shape, or form, but it's all for our benefit. It's all to the point to lead us to salvation and then to uh, show us his mercy, to conform us into the image of his son to sanctify us. Don't be ashamed or fall prey to godless philosophies. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't trade biblical principle for man's established philosophies. We talked about this and we looked discussed modern idols, right? And society being that which would dictate what is right and wrong. Even though God has said, this is wrong, this is sin, this I hate. Yet the church would allow it and accept it in the name of, I don't know, in the name of something other than the gospel, for sure. We're not to be ashamed. We're going to live by faith. When we choose to live by faith, let me just tell you, there's going to be times we fall under persecution. We're going to be made fun of. We're going to be mocked. We're going to be scorned. We're going to be those who, look at that fundamental weirdo over there. It's just inevitable. The world is at enmity with God. And if we're on his team, they're going to be against us too. That's fine. It's fine. Now, did you notice? Did you notice that I switched from apologetics imperative to discipleship imperatives?
1: Did you notice in, on the slides?
0: You know what? you're not going to notice, you're not going to pick it up just by listening to it, because it's one and the same. I said in the beginning that, listen, believers, we are the apologists. It's not a special office that God has established within the church. Apologists are simply faithful followers of Christ. Here are some of the imperatives that we looked at, and we take those serious, and we walk in faith. We redeem the time. We, we work to be uh, agreeable and, and have our speech seasoned with grace. We study the word of God so that we might cut it straight.
1: Apologetics is faithful discipleship. It's the same thing. The imperatives are
0: given to believers and not to super saints. And so listen, I'm just going to remove that excuse we're just taking it off the shelf. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are an apologist. That is your occupation. And it doesn't matter if it's a Greek word or an Aramaic word or a Hebrew word or an English word. it means disciple. We're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We're going to stand for the things that He stood for. We're going to be on his team uh, to use a sports metaphor.
1: Faithful followers. And why? Why would we do that? Because it's for the glory of God, ultimately. Why are we
0: disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, it's a reciprocation of love, right? The reciprocation of love. Turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus is here speaking, and he makes a very simple yet profound statement. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. We go around and we think about it, we cogitate on, and we just stumble over all the ways that we could serve the Lord, what we could do on his behalf. How do I honor him? Listen, Jesus made it really simple. If you love me. If you want to show me the love back that I have shown you in giving my son, keep my commandments. We're not talking about legalism. Jesus removed legalism. He addressed it in the Pharisees over and over again. What we are talking about is standing upon those biblical truths,
1: operating in a way that is consistent with the gospel,
0: keeping his commandments. We don't do any of this for our own glory. We do this ultimately for the glory of God. In Matthew chapter 5, let's turn there for a moment, because as we look at Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, he gives us some clarity. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Right? You are the light of the world. And he goes on and gives this description of what that light lay. In other words, there is a purpose for the light. That's what Jesus is talking about in the next verse. He says, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel. Right? You're wasting your time lighting the candle if your only intent is to hide the light. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, put it under a basket. No, they put it on a candlestick and it gives light to all that are in the house. Listen, in this illustration, you and I are the candle. God is the one who has lit the candle. And he put us on a candlestick. He didn't say, hey, listen, I want you to hide around over here, escape all persecution and hardship and any retaliation against the gospel. Just chill out over here. No, he didn't say that.
1: He put us on a candlestick so that we
0: might give light to those who are around us. This is the same as Paul writing, you are ambassadors for christ we are those that are representing him he goes on and he says in the next verse let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven in other words you and i are a living letter from god to the world around us and we share the gospel and how we conduct ourselves what we say and how we say it the point that i want you to take away from all of this is that god Gave us a purpose. He gave us a very specific thing to engage in that we all are called to. We are his witnesses. We are that light shining into the darkness. We do it because it's obviously what God wants us to do. It is the purpose for which he has saved us. And in an addition and expanding upon that, we are to be ministers of the gospel. Ministers of the gospel. Those who would steward it, those who would take it to those around us. Second Corinthians chapter 5. If you turn there with me for a moment, 2nd Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 18 through 20. We begin with verse 18. says, and all these things are of God who has reckoned reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Now, if we're reconciled, it must mean that there is some breach or some damage in that relationship, right? What am I reconciled from? Well, the Bible tells us that we are enemies of God, that apart from Jesus Christ, we are separated from him. There is no relationship. So through Jesus Christ, we're reconciled. We're brought back into relationship with our creator. All things are of God, so he's created everything, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, who's done everything necessary for our salvation, and has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. People look for and they desire ministry. How do I serve God? You have the ministry of reconciliation. If you're a believer, you are in ministry. Right, we talk about the, the, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in the ministry and either going to be a pastor. That's normally what it means, right? We have to remove that understanding of ministry. We have to think about it the way Jesus thinks about it. You and I are believers. We are in ministry. That's just the way it is. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, ministry that he has before ordained that we should walk in it. Right, there's a predetermined plan for you in Christ before you were saved. You have a ministry. Is it the one you want? doesn't matter. You have a ministry. If there's some other desire, if there's some other leading that God has laid upon your heart, engage in this ministry, the one that you already have first. Be faithful in the small things first. So we have this ministry of reconciliation, verse 19 to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So we have this ministry. What does that ministry look like? It means that we tell people how to be reconciled through Jesus Christ. The word of reconciliation. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. It all breaks down when we're standing in the grocery line. I want to tell you about Jesus, but ah, boy, you know. Let's just talk about your cute kids instead, or the weather, or whatever, right? We've all been there. I've been there. The ministry of reconciliation. We get to tell people about that. Verse 20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Now, keep in mind, Paul is writing this to the church in Corinth. Be reconciled to God. So there's some inference, right, that we need to remain, not that we've lost salvation, but that we would remain in a place that it is recognizable that we are reconciled to God. That those who, on the outside, looking in, would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. If we look like the world and sound like the world, we're the world that looks like a duck, sounds like a duck, walks like a duck, it's a duck, Right? I, had a high, high, <laughs> I had a teacher in high school and he said that all the time and he was deaf. And so everything sounded like a duck. Everything that came out of our mouth. We were always in trouble for cursing or whatever. And we weren't. We just couldn't hear anything. <laughs> but that's what he would tell you. If it looks like a duck and it sounds like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's a duck. Okay. So we just got over it. <laughs> but from the perspective of the ministry that you and I are called into the ministry of reconciliation we should look like believers we should sound like believers we should walk like believers there should be a clear distinction that we are believers we do this all for God's glory this brings him light. we are disciples the word disciple means a student of or a follower of one. It's one who accepts and and assists in the spreading of the gospel. That's our job. We're coming alongside, so to speak. We're brought alongside. That's a better way to say that. We're brought alongside Lord Jesus Christ, and we have the opportunity, the privilege, and the honor to serve in the capacity as witnesses. Now, this all takes some preparation, right? We've hinted at that. We've alluded to that all along here. There are some things that we should engage in to be ready, right? You you don't take kids, 18-year-old boys, and throw them into the military without some training because they'll all die on the battlefield. They don't know what to do. They don't know what the orders mean. They don't know where they're supposed to be or how they're supposed to do it. You sit in the boot camp first. There is a physical and mental training that happens So that when they get to the battlefield, when they get out there, they know who's in charge, they know where their orders are coming from, they know what those orders mean, and they know how to fulfill those orders. And not only do they know how, they are physically and mentally capable of doing it. And in the same way, whether it's in the military or whether it's an athlete who is training uh, to to operate at a very high level, they're going to train. You don't just show up and you're that good. There was years and maybe decades of practice before you got to that level. Right? Serena Williams is probably one of the best tennis. I don't know anything about tennis, but she's probably one of the best tennis players ever. And she's going to retire. She's she's forty, I think. I remember. But she's she she said, "Listen, I want to spend more time with my daughter." That's her reason for retirement. So here she is playing in one of her last tournaments. And she is destroying people. I mean, she's just really, really good. But she trained for decades, decades to get to where she's at. And you know what? When it's the quote-unquote off-season, she's not sitting there eating chips. She's out on the, on the tennis court. She's practicing. She's, here's the little things that were off. How do we make them better? She's actively engaged in that training. Listen, if you know anything about tennis, if I just lied to all of you, I apologize. I don't know anything about tennis. But athletes train for what they're doing. So we need to, first of all, train. And the first thing we're going to train is our faith. We need to establish our faith first. Not only do we need to be born again, but we need to understand first and foremost that this is the level. This is what we're trusting. When it comes down to it, right, we're talking about presuppositions. This is it. God exists, His word is true. And I'm going to operate in that faith, that trust, first and foremost. Turn with me to Colossians chapter two. Colossians chapter two, verses six through eight. Paul writes this As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. I just have a question. This is for anybody to respond to. How did we receive Christ? By grace through faith. Right? We receive that grace by faith. How do we operate? How do we walk in Jesus? In faith. Okay. So we are rooted and built up, it says, in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding there and with thanksgiving. Beware. Lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Or there are there going to be those and they sound, they're compelling, they're, they're, they're great arguments and they're whatever it might be, but it's not after Christ. Maybe there's a little modicum of truth in it, but it's not after Christ.
1: we establish our
0: faith first. If we're, going to be, if we're going to be good disciples, we have to trust Jesus. We have to operate in faith that He has done everything necessary to provide our salvation. Not only that, but the promise of God to give us the Holy Spirit so that we might be capable of doing whatever He may call us to. And he has extended his word to us so that we might be those who are fully equipped, furnished unto every good work that he has called us to. We're going to establish our faith first. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Without faith is it impossible to please him. For those who come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But if I want to be pleasing to God, I'm going to have to operate in faith. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, as we look at the armor of God, in the middle of that, in the middle of all of the armor, it says, Above all, now above all simply means most important,
1: most importantly,
0: taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Listen, if God took the time to tell me that above everything listed, that all of the offensive and defensive parts of the armor of God that I've been given, that the most important thing is the shield of faith, I need to understand that that's pretty significant. So we're going to build our faith first. We're going to uh, engage in it. We're going to trust God. Now, we've talked about this in the past. That means that I'm going to predetermine my response in whatever may come my way whether it's hardship whether it's good stuff no matter what it is i predetermine i choose now just like jesus say pick up your cross and follow me predetermine this morning who you're going to serve i'm going to i'm going to choose now that i'm going to operate in faith and we can fill in all kinds of circumstances. What if that happened? What if this terrible tragedy? What if I'm going to trust that that, is, that God is
1: good? And there's just nothing that's going to shake that. I trust.
0: No matter what it may be. We read through Hebrews chapter 11, those who trusted God in, in, in the hall of faith there. And it says that there are those who were martyred, those who uh, were put to death, those who were heavily persecuted, none of those even seeing the promise of God. They didn't see the fulfillment of it in Jesus Christ. They were all looking forward with an expectancy. And he goes on in the next chapter, in the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 12, right? Therefore, because we're compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily entangle us. Looking down uh, under Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame.
1: We look at the example of Jesus Christ. No matter what it may be, we're going to trust.
0: We're going to study the word of God. We talked about this earlier, right? That that's part of what we should do In, in 2 Timothy chapter 14 to 15. That we study the word of God. We show ourselves approved. Uh, I don't know if we read verse fourteen. Let me turn there for just a moment. Second Timothy two fourteen. He says, "Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers." Right. There are some things that are just. It, do, it doesn't matter. Those things are going to subvert the hearers. Uh, an example of that, right here I am, we're having this, this discussion. There's all these apologists around. These are, these are good apologists. These are guys that trust the Lord. They, I mean, they're, they're very solid. And we, we decided we're going to have this at the hotel, in the courtyard. We're going to have this Bible study. We're going to get together and study the Word of God. And the topic of choice that night, after we've invited this little family in the elevator, was geocentricity versus heliocentricity. In other words, is the earth the center of the, the universe or is the sun the center of the universe? And listen, it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Right? And this little family over here who, who are believers and, and seemingly relatively new believers had no idea what we were talking. They didn't care right? Subverting of the hearers. If this is what Christianity is all about, that's weird. I don't want anything to do with it. What do we need? We need the fundamentals of the faith. We need to understand the word of God. We're going to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. Here it is. How do you, here's what the word of God says to you, young man, about being a husband and a father. I mean, re- practical stuff. This is what the Word of God says to you and I. What does it say about the nature of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and all of those things that we look at and we use as instruments to share the gospel, to fulfill this ministry of reconciliation? Second Corinthians chapter 10, the, the, the result of all this, the goal of all this, isn't simply to have a bunch of knowledge isn't simply to have stuff there that we can spout off and and be convincing and and wow look at this guy he knows so much of the bible no ultimately the the end goal oops second corinthians not first corinthians the end goal is that we would be consistent with jesus christ who would cast down second corinthians 10:5 Cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And if I just sum all that up, ultimately, I study the word of God so that I think like Jesus. The way he thinks about economics or religion or politics or whatever it may be, that I might think like him. That's the long and short of what that's saying. And when we encounter that, when we get into the word of God, and we do so prayerfully, we do so humbly, it casts down imaginations. It pulls down those things. It confronts us. It gets in our teeth, as it were, and we have to deal with it. And it's going to change our hearts. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. I almost quoted it earlier. So we're going to turn there and read it because I might not get it again. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Not only do I want to think like Christ, not only am I commanded to study Scripture, listen, if I want to be successful, successful in the ministry that God has given me, if you want to be successful in the ministry that God has given you, and you want to be furnished, you want to be able to do that, the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly, completely furnished unto all good works.
1: By the Word of God.
0: We need to be engaged in it. If we're going to train to be these apologists, to be these faithful disciples, we're going to have to study the Word of God. I told you we were going to talk about presuppositional versus any other kind of apologetics. In one slide. Here it is. Right, You had the laws of logic, uh, uniformity of nature, absolute morality. Now, just pause there for a moment. None of that is bad or wrong. If you have laws of logic, if you have some of those things in your tool bag, that's great. If you understand the uniformity of nature, I think that's probably more important than laws of logic myself. Because that's what God has given. We're going to talk about that as we, as we move forward this morning. Absolute morality. Ultimately, the fact that God exists and he is the originator of right and wrong, that he, he declares what is right, what is wrong. He establishes the standard of righteousness, so on and so forth. That's absolute morality. Or or also known as the moral argument. You can have all of that, but if it isn't founded on the Word of God, you see how that's a little shaky? The Word of God is the foundation for all of those things. The Word of God is the foundation for logic. The Word of God is the foundation for the uniformity of nature. It gives us the reason why it's uniform. It's created, it's designed to be such. The Bible in its first verse, in the beginning, God assumes the existence of God, therefore assumes the existence of a superior and infinite moral being. Without the word of God, those things fall apart. If you're interested, I completely ripped this out of an article that I read by Answers to Genesis. Fantastic article regarding the authority of the Word of God. Actually, I took that quote from Ken Ham from the same, same article. It goes into a little bit more depth about different styles of apologetics, but ultimately lands up on the idea that, listen, the Word of God is foundational to all of it. It was a very well-written article. I can send you the link if anybody's interested. I think it's called Apologetics. Uh, what is it? And, nope, I have it in my notes here, but I can, I can send it to you interested okay not only that we are going to train uh you need to be part of a bible teaching church it's part of what we need to do now in ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 12 we read about that we looked at the list of those things that are there right and he gave some apostles uh, prophets pastors evangelists pastors teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Right, that we as believers in part of a church, in a good Bible-teaching church, should be equipped, should be hearing the Word of God in addition to our own personal study. And let me just add that, in addition to your own personal study, what you get on a Sunday is not enough. The Bible requires, if we're going to rightly divide the Word of God, that we study it ourselves. But in addition to that, we should be having some conform, uh, some confirmation and further education, training, being part of a Bible teaching church. That we would be ready for the work of the ministry. That
1: we would be equipped for that. That's part of what should be accomplished to the church. We also need to
0: engage in regular fellowship. In Hebrews chapter 10, turn there with me if you will. Hebrews chapter 10, if we're going to be those uh, disciples, th- those effective disciples, convinced that the scripture gives us some insight. It says uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning of verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful to promise. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So here's the deal, right? Uh, That that we would engage in fellowship, that that fellowship, that engagement with other believers would be such that it is engaging, that we are interacting with one another, and that it is lovingly confrontational. We we, would call each other out a little bit. Listen, but what does the Bible say about that? What is it, 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 That it would be a lovingly, confrontational provocation to serve God. That's what fellowship should be. That's what it should result in. And if we're not resulting in that, then we've probably missed the mark at fellowship. We spent too much time in the fellowship hall and not enough time in fellowship.
1: That's the point. For not
0: child that iron sharpening iron that we pray for on a pretty regular basis, that our fellowship would accomplish that. And, and I'm as guilty as anybody. It's easy to talk about the weather. It's easy to talk about the projects you got going on at home. It's easy to talk about all of those things. And I'm not saying that we can't or that we shouldn't. But I'm saying that the purpose of fellowship, we can't call that fellowship. That's, that's being in community with each other. I have that with the people at work, and so do you. But the people at work aren't confronting me and saying, Listen, I see what's going on in your life, and you know, I think the Bible has something to say about that. Have you considered this? As a a mechanism of correction within the body of Christ to keep the body of Christ whole and consistent, to maximize, as it were, the witness that you and I might have. This is a there's a difference in what happens in the church and in, in fellowship and what happens other places or there should be. So we need to be part of a Bible teaching church. We need to be engaged in regular fellowship. I'll just say your fellowship, that, that regular fellowship, you should be getting some of that at church, good fellowship. It doesn't have to be exclusive to church. It could be a Bible study. It could be a uh, youth It could be all kinds of other places, just people getting together. It's not necessarily a church only function it's a believer to believer function we find that fellowship anywhere i found fellowship with other believers at conferences related to work and we had good fellowship over lunch and nobody else at the table was really engaged in the conversation nor did they want to be but here we were having good fellowship. Next, we're going to find and observe creation. We're going to find and observe creation. Psalm 19, 1 and 2, uh, the heavens declare His glory and the firmament His handiwork, so on and so forth, whatever the rest says. Uh, I apologize. We should probably just turn there and read it. <laughs> Psalm 19. Note itself. don't do that. Uh, just turn there and read it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. Here is God, and he's revealed himself in his creation. As we get into the New Testament in Romans chapter 1, it talks about uh, all of creation, you and I, mankind, being without excuse because God has sufficiently revealed himself in what he has made. And so what uh, all of that is, this is where we get to use. Within, uh, within our apologetics efforts. And okay, those evidences that are out there, and we've talked about this in the past, they're there because it's true. They don't make it true because we have enough evidence. Does that make sense? It's there. It, the sky is blue because it is, because, and we can explain the reasons why. We can look at it and understand why it ends up being blue. And there are scientific principles that play there and, and that govern that, but those are created principles. That's part of the order that God has established in his creation. So those evidences that are out there will always be confirming of truth. Here's the problem with evidences. And, and so this is, this is low on my list of stuff to train in because ultimately, it can, it can be a distraction. It doesn't have to be. It might be that little bit of, of information that gets somebody over the hump and makes them open to the gospel. It very well could be that. But what happens is that for believers, we are very comfortable talking about these things because they're interesting and they're fun and they're confirming of our faith. What we need to realize is that person over there that we're sharing that with doesn't share our faith. It may not be interesting to them. They don't care. don't let it be a time waster. Use it as the tool that it needs to be. Just enough to get to the gospel. It's always going to be confirming of truth. It'll never contradict what we find in scripture. If it contradicts something in scripture, we've interpreted it wrongly. Science has put something out there that is inconsistent. The other thing that we have to be careful of is that we don't give those evidences an equal or superior platform of authority than the Word of God. Whatever we've won them by is what we won them to. We win people to, to God through the truth of His Scripture. Sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth, Jesus said in John 17, 17. If we win them by all these evidences, now there always has to be something in. Anything that comes in, that shakes that foundation shakes their faith.
1: And they may be lost.
0: They, they may be, their, their faith may be shipwrecked. Okay, so we're just going to be careful. Find and observe. This is part of what we need to do if we're going to train to be apologists. If we're going to engage with people. We need to use the things, the, the evidences and all those things that are out there the laws of logic, the the uniformity of nature—all those things that we looked at, right? Those should be in place. We should understand them. We should use them as as tactics to get to the good news. I want to just close with this because here we are, as as operating as apologists, and, and right, we suspect that here are these apologists. They're masterful speakers. They know. I mean, they wield the word of God with uh, surgical precision, and they know all of this stuff, and. Well, that stuff is probably true. Not everyone's going to be convinced of the gospel, and we need to realize that. We need to have that uh, because not everyone's going to hear it, so that we don't struggle with "Man, did I do a terrible job? Did I say something wrong? Did I should I have done this or should I have done that?" Don't second guess. In Second Peter, chapter three, turn there with me. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. So ultimately, we're we're engaging with people who may not even acknowledge the fact, they may choose to ignore the truth that God has created everything. He spoke it into existence, whereby, verse 6, whereby the world that was, that then was being overflowed with water perished. Right? We're, We're talking about this understanding that everything is the same as it has always been, and it continues forward as if nothing from the beginning of time to the end of time, nothing in the middle has ever changed or affected it. When in reality, we find this huge cataclysmic event, Noah's flood, in the midst of all of this that drastically changed the world. And so they are choosing to ignore the very fact and the evidence that what is out there confirming the authenticity and the truthfulness of what God's Word says. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved in the fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Listen, the reason they don't want to acknowledge that is that they acknowledge that, they have to acknowledge the rest of what Scripture says. Ultimately, that there is judgment coming. They don't want to think about that. They don't want to engage with that, that truth. In Romans 1:18, it tells us that uh, there are those let me turn there, Romans 118. for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or who hold or suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They don't want anything to do with it. As Jesus is inter- interacting in John chapter three with Nicodemus, and we have John 3.16, and, and, and if you're really good, you know John 3.17 right after that, and if you're supercent, you know John 3.18 through 20. Not really, none of that means anything, but this is Jesus' interaction. And it's Jesus, in fact, giving us some insight into why they would do all this, why they would suppress that, why they wouldn't hold it. And ultimately it says that, listen, you and I, that God has lit and put on that candlestick, they don't like the light. Because when they're doing the things that they're doing in the light, everybody gets to see that it's evil. That it is in fact unrighteous, that it is sinful. They don't want to be confronted with that very simple truth. And ultimately, as a result of their sinfulness, sinfulness, they find themselves condemned, judged by God himself,
1: with their righteous judgment, with their appropriate judgment. You and I just need to realize, listen, it's
0: not personal. You didn't do anything wrong. You're not a bad apologist. You're not a poor disciple. It's just the repercussions of sinfulness in people's lives. You plant the seed. Maybe you have the opportunity to water the seed. Maybe you have the joy and the privilege of harvesting, of reaping what has been sown and stewarded by others. But in the end, whatever beef they may have with anyone, it's against the Lord and not against you. So don't let that fear stop you from doing the things that God has called you to, from being a faithful disciple, from being an apologist that would stand as a witness, and ambassador. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the opportunity to open your word. I pray, Lord, that we would be uh, challenged, that we would be uh, convinced, as it were, of the calling that you have put before us in Scripture. And Lord, by your grace, because we can only do this by your grace, as we read in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, let us have grace that so we might serve you acceptably. Lord, we pray that you would extend your grace to us, that we might be your ambassadors, we might be your witnesses, that we might be those apologists, faithful disciples. Establish us in
1: faith, Lord. We believe, in, but help our unbelief
0: in whatever areas we may need to be shorn up in. We thank you and we praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the certainty and the assurance of the salvation that he has purchased for us by his shed blood and that alone. And Lord, I pray that you would bless our time of fellowship. That as we have opportunity to engage with one another here, Father, that it would be significant and meaningful. That we wouldn't counterfeit it. We praise you and we thank you, Lord, as we have opportunity to praise and worship and sing for who you are and all that you've done, Lord. Here it is the offering of our lips. In Jesus' name,
1: amen.